Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doralstown Presbyterian Church. As our podcast audience continues to grow, I want to thank our loyal listeners and welcome those who may have just recently found us. We know that life can quickly become busy, so this podcast offers an on-the-go opportunity to hear a Sunday sermon along with the scripture lesson read by that day's lay leader or preacher. We also encourage you to visit our website at dtownpc.org to learn more about our church and all of our diverse ministries. Thank you for tuning in. Our New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke. We continue his account of the events on the cross. Reading from the 23rd chapter, beginning this day with the 39th verse. You can find it on page 89 in the New Testament portion of your Pew Bible. The words will appear on the screen for those of you joining us from home. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding Jesus and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. During the season of Lent, we are focusing in worship on phrases in the Bible known as the last words of, last seven words of Jesus. Each of those passages recounts something else that Jesus spoke, and all of them came from his time on the cross. Last week, we began this series by listening in as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And today, we continue with Luke's record as he describes a conversation that follows immediately between Jesus and the ones who were crucified to his right and left. All the Gospels make mention of those two other men. Luke refers to them as criminals. Matthew and Mark speak of them as bandits, while John simply calls them others. For the purpose of this sermon, I'm going to be using the more traditional label for those two men, namely thieves, who were also crucified with our Lord. On that day, we are told that one of those thieves began to ridicule Jesus, saying, Are you not the Messiah? If so, save yourself and us. This was only the latest in a series of times when people along the path to the cross and then after he was placed upon it, that voices shouted out words of ridicule 
toward Jesus. Two of the Gospels tell us that both of those thieves joined in that time of disparaging Jesus in those minutes. Luke has a different version of what occurred. For we are told that the other said to the first, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not clear to us exactly what that man was asking for or what he knew about Jesus. Some have suggested that he simply knew that Jesus was some kind of king, and so he was hedging his bets that if somehow the ones loyal to Jesus were to rescue him at the end, that he too wanted to be saved. Others think that the man clearly understood the true nature of Jesus, and he was speaking of the events that would occur at the end of time. We don't really know. But in response, Jesus says to the man, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That response is worthy of all kinds of reflection and question on our part. You might have noticed, for instance, that Jesus gave the man more than he asked for. He simply wanted to be remembered. And Jesus instead said that there would be this internal presence that they would share. We might also reflect upon how Jesus in that moment said, today you will be with me in paradise. Our faith tradition speaks of how when Jesus breathed his last, he didn't immediately go to heaven. The Apostles' Creed, for instance, describes it as after his time of death that he descended into hell and only on the third day was he raised. And yet here he says to this thief, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a moment, too, when Jesus transforms the break between heaven and earth that began at the Garden of Eden. We heard in our Old Testament lesson that reminder of how after that couple had sinned, that they were driven out of the garden and were kept from re-entering it by a cherubim with a flaming sword so that they might not again reach the tree of life. And yet it was on that tree that we call the cross that that man and millions more were restored to relationship with God. We could ponder any of those aspects of Jesus' last words in this scene and could spend the rest of Lent doing so in profitable fashion. But I have five more last words of Jesus that we're going to consider. And so we're going to set aside those kinds of ponderings for another time and focus our attention on what evoked those final words. For we heard moments ago, read with appropriate pacing and, and support, 
these, the request that the thief makes of Jesus. And yet, it's important to know that people who understand such things say that what really caused death by crucifixion was not the loss of blood, but suffocation. As the individual with their arms outstretched eventually grew so tired they could no longer breathe. Which suggests to me that the way that petition was phrased to Jesus in that moment was more like, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I would argue that those words are ones that we should claim for ourselves too. Now, I'm not suggesting any of you are thieves, ever convicted of burglary or shoplifting. I'm not even calling into attention that current practice of sharing passwords between parents and children or friends for one's favorite streaming site, though, that actually might qualify. No, I'm thinking more of those legal and everyday kinds of acts that we and others carry out that have this nature of thievery. For sometimes, people can rob themselves of really an occasion of great growth and opportunity because they have convinced themselves that they'll never get into their dream college or never get that promotion and thus don't even apply. There are other moments when people can hold themselves back from experiencing incredible joy as they talk themselves out of asking out that one they really want to share a meal with, or they have received this amazing job but turn it down because it will require them to move for the first time in their lives. There are moments when individuals disregard medical advice and as a result can steal from their health and vitality. And there are occasions when persons can disparage the success of someone else, thus killing the joy or pride that that person could appropriately feel over what has occurred. The first thief on the cross engaged in that kind of behavior. And yet his crucified companion made a better choice. A friend recently gave me a book in which an author creatively imagines the stories of people that we know were part of Jesus' life during his earthly ministry. In some cases, uh, the author will take someone from whom we have a few words in the Bible and, and build upon it, made it a more complete sort of account. In other cases, the author will take someone that we know is in Scripture, but as far as the Bible's concerned, never speaks, and will offer dialogue or conversation for that person. And then there are these occasions when his imagination 
introduces someone into the scene that is not described as being there in the Bible. And in one chapter tells of the thinking of the sister of the second thief. Here's what she has to say. His charges are clearly posted over his head. Although I know he's guilty, the blood that binds me to him makes me long to help him somehow. I watched him grow up and tried to be a good influence on him, but he always wanted everything the quick and easy way. My brother never owned up to anything. He always felt that life had overlooked him and had given him a bad deal. Everything bad in life, he thought, was someone else's fault. As that author's imagination continues, he describes the sister looking on with dismay as the first thief ridicules Jesus, and then as her own brother defends Jesus, and then continues. My brother speaks again, his body tortured with the very effort. I strain to listen, no longer afraid of what will come from his mouth. I know my brother has conquered the darkness within him, not boldly, not mockingly, but with an urgency and humility of a man filled with love and conviction. He asks Jesus to remember him when he gets to his kingdom. Such a simple request from a man who spent his life seeking the wrong things. In these agonizing moments, my brother, she says, finally seeks a recognition that transcends the worldly. The kingdom he seeks now is not one built on gold or silver, but rather on the heavenly. To those imagined words, let me share with you the last words of someone whose life has been well documented. A few years ago, I read a biography written by Walter Isaacson about Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple Computer. He'd had the opportunity for a number of one-on-one interviews with Jobs in the last months of his life, it's hard for me to think of another person in my lifetime who has had a broader influence on the culture than Jobs. With personal computers, cell phones, animated motion pictures, even the way that we now acquire and listen to music. All of that came about through his creativity and that of his team. The book recounts all of those things, sometimes boastfully, sometimes with regrets that he had. And what became clear is that Jobs was a very complicated man. Drove his staff incredibly hard, was estranged from his daughter for years, and at best had a complicated faith. At one point, Isaacson recounts a speech that Jobs gave seven years before his death, and it was to the graduating class at Stanford University. And as part of that address, he said this, I want to tell you three stories from my life. 
The first was about dropping out of college. I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me, he said, and begin dropping in on the ones that looked far more interesting. Second story was about how he was fired by Apple at age 30 and how it turned out to be a blessing. The heaviness of being successful, he said, was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything. The students, Isaacson said, were unusually attentive, despite a plane circling overhead with a banner that exhorted, recycle all e-waste. It was his third tale, though, that enthralled them. It was about being diagnosed with cancer and the awareness it brought. Remembering that I'll be dead soon, he told the graduates, is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just all fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. And at his funeral that followed months later, Job's sister shared that his final words of her agnostic brother were, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Just hours before his death, a convicted thief turned to the only innocent one on that first century hill. And he asked a gift of him. And in response, received a blessing that began almost immediately and endured. An account that suggests to me that even though clearly our acts of thievery can be very different, that we would do well to make his words our own.
Thank you again for joining us today. Once again, I invite you to check out dtownpc.org for information about our worship and programming for all ages.